the sort of buy the dip mentality and how incredibly self-reinforcing it is. I mean, we're breaking a lot of records at the moment in terms of we've gone something like 195 days without a 5% decline in the S&P 500 <laughs> in record time from the lows last March, uh, as in it's up 100% from then. And um, it's just funny, the dips are getting smaller and smaller. And um, it's one of those things where every time a dip does get bought, it reinforces that notion that you should buy the dip. So the next time fewer people will panic or fewer people will not buy the dip. And so it just sort of keeps going. And um, what I was reading about this was quite a nice point, which was that the only thing that can actually break that cycle is. Welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Want to be a better, smarter, more clued up investor? Well, you've come to the right place. We cover the breakthrough investment ideas you don't hear about in the mainstream to keep you on top of the megatrends and opportunities reshaping our world. Good morning and welcome to the Exponential Investor Podcast. Uh, I'm your editor, Sam Volkering, here again with my co-editor, Kit Winder. Uh, good morning, Kit. Nice to be with you again uh, this week. Uh, how's, how's things? What have you been looking at in the markets this week? What's caught your eye? What's caught your attention? Uh, well, various things. I think the thing that's taking over the news mostly at the moment is uh, Afghanistan, but it very much remains to be seen uh how or in what directions that's that's going to move markets i think the first the most immediate one is a, a pretty rapid loss of uh voter popularity with joe biden and then also a massive surge in sort of republican confidence and sort of derision of him and his administration so i think sort of a lot of the talk around bipartisanship of getting through huge infrastructure bills with no concessions and all the rest of it um you know that's a pretty significant political shift in america we don't know if it'll stay but for now at least you know from my little world of green investing that we, we speak about so often, um, that was going to require a huge amount of financial stimulus, government spending that he was going to have to get through. Um, maybe maybe that looks a little less likely now. Does that mean stocks go up? Is that is that the answer there? <laughs> you happen to know that hashtag stocks always go up, Sam. But, uh, only up. Up yeah, only, no, I think. <laughs> ironically, the other thing I was, um, I guess, maybe it's not something you look at, but something I was thinking about this week is that the sort of buy the dip mentality and how incredibly self-reinforcing it is. I mean, we're breaking a lot of records at the moment in terms of we've gone something like 195 days without a 5% decline in the S&P 500 <laughs> in record time from the lows last March, uh, as in it's up 100% from then. And um, it's just funny, the dips are getting smaller and smaller. And um, it's one of those things where every time a dip does get bought, it reinforces that notion that you should buy the dip. So the next time fewer people will panic or fewer people will not buy the dip. And so it just sort of keeps going. And um, what I was reading about this was quite a nice point, which was that the only thing that can actually break that cycle is a truly seismic shock, like a market shock that breaks all of the buy the dippers until you break that philosophy. And talking about a black swan event, Kit. Uh, I think... We're at the point now where we have to call them grey swans usually uh, or, or white swans if you want to predict a market crash with valuations at record highs. And I think Nassim Taleb, who coined the phrase, started to get a bit annoyed about how many people were using the phrase black swan for things that were probably somewhat predictable. Um, but yes. Well, perhaps our, the black swan event was uh, was the start of the virus last year. Well, he argued that that was a predictable spread the lock you know the lockdowns and the panic once the virus had started spreading exponentially 
it's stopped being a black swan. But I'll leave that to him, I guess. Well, speaking of buying the dips, um, there's, two, <laughs> there's two, two, two angles I want to go down with this. Um, one which caught my attention was, and I love this. I love seeing this in the market. It's, it's, it's gladiatorial. It's combative. It's, uh, it is 1v1. Uh, the, the modern day legendary investor, Kathy Wood from uh, Investment <laughs> Management. Sorry, can we... The legendary, the legendary uh, investor, Michael Burry, uh, who very famously um, basically played the 2008 crash to great success. Uh, they are going head to head. It is, uh, it is, it is Burry v. Wood. Uh, basically, for people that don't know, Burry is more or less shorted uh, Kathy Wood's investment funds. So he is saying, she's saying on one hand that innovation, continual technology development, uh, new new investment asset classes. Uh, the the she looks to the future as being very optimistic that, that inflation is going to be indeed a temporary uh, notch and that it's not going to be an issue longer term. And she is certainly, I think, of the opinion that uh, stocks will go up. Um, and her, her funds her funds play that uh, very nicely and, and have done so to great success uh, during the last you know few years of, of what has been amounted to an incredible bull run. Uh, Bury disagrees, vehemently disagrees. Um, and so it's very much a, one of these one of these legendary investors is going to be right and one is going to be wrong. You can't get very much more diametrically opposed as to what, their vision of the market is going to be. Um, I'm interested to see, Kit, on which side of the equation do you think you fall? Are you, are you, do you think that Burry's maybe got a point and that Kathy's funds are maybe going to be a bit on the nose in the, in the shorter term? Or is she going to continue to be right? And are we going to see maybe more great success from her investment strategies? Uh, well, it's a really nice little setup uh, that you have there. I think where I thought it's kind of interesting because I sort of am traditionally or normally or come from a sort of value perspective in terms of trying to buy undervalued stocks, being scared when things are very overvalued as, as so many things are, especially Kathy Wood's fund. So that's why Bari is specifically targeting her as she's at the most extreme edge of the valuation, um, you know, records that are being set at the moment. Um, however, I think probably where, you know, my last few years of looking at green energy and the energy transition have sort of, showed me is that, you know, incredible growth and the stories that she is talking about in terms of electrification and vehicles, and she was very early on Tesla, um, has a huge amount of value as well. And I think uh, what I'd probably say is that they're both right. And the only issue is around timing. So I would agree with her that she was right. She would have been saying in 1998 and nine, the internet is the future. And Bari would have been shorting her. And he would have been right for two years. And she would have been right 20 years later. And we don't quite know how those timings are going to going to basically align but it's entirely possible that they're both correct and they're just on different time frames uh i think i would probably agree with him that this isn't the best time ever to be buying kathy wood's funds but i would definitely agree with her that a lot of the things she's investing in and i'm sure you would as well are enormously important and fascinating themes that have the potential to deliver sorry mm. um enormous growth over the coming years um so, yeah, I think uh, it's one of those where there's pretty good arguments on both sides. Yeah, I, I'd certainly like uh, she I mean, I, I think very similarly to her in terms of the vision of what can be achieved and the kinds of technologies that we are really on the precipice with 
um, around AI and, and quantum computing, uh, decentralized networks, obviously the uh, energy transition. A lot of these, these things are very deeply rooted in new breakthrough technologies and something that I think will certainly carry the market forward with new opportunities as well. Um, I think it's important that uh, we don't ignore the fact that there will be opportunities that currently aren't, you know, accessible on the public markets that will be coming online in the next few years as new technologies come to market, commercialize and go from that experimental research and development phase to commercialization. So there's certainly that element of pushing the market forward as well. But at the same time, I kind of disagree with her around the idea of inflation being a temporary thing, I think. I think we can't ignore that it's going to set in and shall set in for some time and, and I think get worse before it gets better. So I agree, there's, there's elements of, uh, of uh, Burry's um, uh, investment thesis that, that I agree with as well. So I think you're right. I think it's a matter of timing. Um, if you're you know, a short-term trader, then good luck to you. <laughs> if you're a long-term <laughs> investor, then I think you know, we're still looking at, at a load of opportunities. Um, I mean, did you, did you want to add anything else to that discussion before I jump on to the next buy the dip uh, angle I wanted to, to put? Uh, yeah, only just briefly say, I think probably the interesting thing is probably how incredibly similar they are in terms of they are basically two investors whose, you know, strategies or mindsets or philosophies of investing led them to be incredibly famous because they just arrived at the right time. So Michael Burry um, is one of tens of hundreds of thousands of investors who discover some, you know, incomprehensible anomaly some uh, horrible imbalanced system in the markets and shorts it and 98 percent of those are wrong or they're minor he and a bunch of others that michael lewis wrote about in his um in his book the big short that was made into a film they were you know the tip of an iceberg of people who make those kind of really really amazingly rash calls and are wrong he happened to be right and so he's famous but that um you know, that could sort of happen not to anyone, but it doesn't mean that every incredible decision that he makes going forward is going to be correct. You have to sort of and not get fooled by randomness as going back to Nassim Taleb would say. And I think Cathy Wood has basically had the same thing, which is lots of people are growth investors and tech investors and sort of public market venture capitalists, which is basically what she is, is just the earlier stage equities she can find in new technologies. It just so happens that around 2013, 14, 15, that was the absolute best thing you could be for the next eight years. And so she's done incredibly well. The number one thing, I guess, that I get very concerned about with her is that she seems to get more confident or at least less confident as prices go up. Um, and that I always find concerning. So she starts to fit things into her own narrative. Like you say, with inflation, like I would have bet a million pounds if you could invest in Kathy Wood, believing that the thing that would threaten her stocks would be. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so just that thing where she seems now slightly immune to anything that could derail her own. Yeah. She, she's not going to wreck her own funds. Yeah. Uh, but we can recognize her incredible success and her brilliant achievement of the last seven yeah. years and still be pretty cautious about what you'd do from there. Indeed. Now, speaking of confidence, uh, something else that popped up this week uh, was Michael Gigachad Sailor uh, announced that MicroStrategy had gone ahead and bought uh, a couple more thousand Bitcoin uh, to add to their their growing pile. I think it's just over just over 108,000 Bitcoin they now hold on uh, in, the, in their treasury on their balance sheet, um, which I think gives a current 
rough uh, valuation of, of six point something billion dollars worth of Bitcoin that they hold. I think their average entry price is about 25,000 US dollars or something like that. Um, I, I, so when, when they announced this, I had a look at the numbers. And at the time, um, MicroStrategy was carrying a $7 billion uh, valuation. And, and I, I, I ran the numbers on 108,000, whatever it is, uh, Bitcoin. And I, I figured out that if Bitcoin goes past its all-time high, uh, which it achieved earlier this year, like $64,800, uh, if, the, if the fiat converted value of Bitcoin goes above that, then, then the, the value of Bitcoin alone that MicroStrategy will hold will surpass, comfortably surpass the current market cap of the company. Now, to me, that seems like it's a... Uh, again, one of those anomalies <laughs> that, that perhaps perhaps investors aren't realizing. I mean, there's the microstrategy is a little bit more complicated than that. There's obviously debt involved, and there's another business unit involved that actually still you know makes money. Um, but it feels like microstrategy has evolved almost into a kind of levered Bitcoin ETF uh, as a way to play the price of Bitcoin without actually having to invest in it. Is is Sailor crazy? continuing to buy it up i mean when does he stop does he stop can he stop uh or is he just the yeah the ultimate bitcoin giga chat um yeah i mean someone's gonna do it right you just turn your company into a massive bitcoin fund like in the uk there's a lot of limitations on running a bitcoin fund or a bitcoin etf or investing in bitcoin but if you're just a company and you're at CEO, you have a lot more wherewithal to just do what you want with the money that your investors give you, right? So he can just turn his business into just buying Bitcoin, and then the valuation simply just reflects that. I don't think it's really an anomaly that if Bitcoin goes up, it will exceed its valuation, because I think its valuation is now basically intrinsically tied to the Bitcoin price, plus a little bit for whatever the other business is, which I don't know. I don't know how many people who invest in MicroStrategy know um so for me it's just like bitcoin is probably risky enough why do you need to invest in a pretty crazy guy who i think when i watch him speak i don't ever think wow this guy is a crypto visionary i think wow this guy is cotton on to the fact that if he goes on about bitcoin people are going to give him a lot of money for free <laughs> do you know what i mean like i i'm not if i was thinking do i ask him or sam volkering about you know, the ins and outs of what's going on in crypto or the blockchain technology or anything like there's no way I'm going to him. But he goes on yeah. CNN, and he goes on the big news networks, and he talks a lot of big talk about Bitcoin, and he buys a lot of it with a lot of debt, which makes no sense to me. And as in, it makes no sense to me why people lend him money to buy Bitcoin instead of buying it themselves. Um, so he's like Kathy Wood, right? He's now got to a point where it's not like he's going to go out and start trash talking Bitcoin or its potential because his company if it's publicly listed, is so deeply rooted in it that uh, it would be it would be like removing value for shareholders, which is which would would be enough to get him removed as CEO. Um, so it's it's interesting. It's 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 they all these these pillars of the investment world. It seems are all actually very similar. Strangely enough. They get carried away perhaps by their own egos and by their own uh, successes to then have, have no other option but to continue down that slippery slope. They're um, buying their own dips, Sam. 
They are buying their own dips, and you, I wouldn't be surprised. Uh, the other thing, actually, that just you mentioned on, is, and uh, something that we've covered a little bit uh, in this podcast in an exponential investor before, just before we wrap up, you mentioned about the UK, uh, you know, being somewhat adversarial towards uh, cryptocurrency. Obviously, the uh, FCA banned a number of uh, exchange-traded products and things like that. They've um, put some warnings out about things like Binance markets. We know that a lot of the high street banks make purchasing cryptocurrency very difficult, either by blocking or banning transactions or just outright refusing to allow transactions to certain cryptocurrency exchanges and, and processes. That said, PayPal is now rolling out the ability to buy, hold, and sell cryptocurrency to UK users. So if you've got a PayPal account in the UK, pretty soon you will be able to buy, sell, and hold cryptocurrency within your PayPal account. This is significant because this is, this is a, a major, massive global financial services company that has got UK operations. And it is saying to the UK market, it is saying to the UK banks, it is saying to the UK regulator, crypto's okay. Uh, we don't mind our customers and our clients and our, our users investing in it and buying it and holding it and selling it. We think it's an opportunity for our business to allow this for our customers. And I think it's a bit of a warning shot across the bow of, uh, of, the, of the UK financial services market that they are not taking this seriously enough. Um, and now that PayPal's come to the market with a little bit of competition to allow this sort of thing uh, for, for everybody to do. I think it's uh, I think it's a huge development for the for the crypto. I mean, I think PayPal's got something like two million, uh, I think, customers in the UK. Um, so all of a sudden, you know, that's that's two million um, potentially, uh, you know, active users in the cryptocurrency space. I'm sure some already are, but some probably aren't. And and this will make it a whole bunch easier. So I think that's a really big development as well that people need to keep an eye out for. And again, it just signifies this shift. Of, of the old traditional money world, which is very much the UK high street banks, to, to this idea of a new money, new money world, new money system, uh, like PayPal uh, and other, you know, you know, some of the more, you know, newer entrants to, to this sort of market, like Robinhood, albeit they're, you know, US and, and not UK based. But it just shows that there's a big transition taking place. You look at companies like MicroStrategy, Kathy Woods, you know, invested in the Grayscale Bitcoin Trust as part of her investment strategy as well. Obviously, um, you know, companies like Tesla with Elon Musk as well, you know, holding Bitcoin on their on their uh, balance sheets. There's a lot happening in this space. Um, and I think the, the, the PayPal move into the UK with this uh, has not been recognized as being as big as it actually is. I think for the wider for the wider space, particularly here in the UK. But uh, anyway, we've we've rambled on enough this week. Um, thanks again, Kit. Would you do you have any closing remarks that you'd like to add uh, for this week's episode? Uh, I, I was only just going to ask very briefly. Um, the PayPal thing is obviously seems like very big news, but my question would be, given how easy it is to set up a Coinbase account and buy some how many marginal users of Bitcoin are left who are like, oh, wow, finally I can get it on PayPal. Like, thank God there's finally a way to get Bitcoin. I suppose I think, you know, the, the players who might move the needle are in now and how much more... Uh, you, would, you would think so. To convert. But, but uh, it's actually still... There are still financial institutions that block people from... You can set up a Coinbase account easily. Like setting up these accounts, there's no issue with that. It's then getting your actual money onto these exchanges in order to activate these purchases. That's the tricky part. 
but I would struggle to think that the UK banks are going to block PayPal if you catch my drift. So okay. that that step into into crypto uh, does become significantly easier, and I think removes a lot of the barriers that and frustrations and frictions that we are currently seeing in the UK market that seem to only be getting worse. I might add. Um, you know, good good luck trying to trying to buy on Binance with any of the major UK banks, yeah. uh, or or any of the other number of exchanges uh, out there. Coinbase may be a little bit easier because they're publicly listed, but still, I've heard of difficulty. I don't see that now. I may be wrong. They may block this, but I would struggle to think there that the banks are going to block payments or transactions to PayPal as opposed to something like Binance. So yeah, it's kind of a new side door into the crypto market, I would think. Yeah, and also just, I mean, you talk about how they see it view, you know, people often view crypto as risky or institutions do as well. But if you can trust PayPal coming in and offering crypto to UK investors, then uh, Lloyd's at the same time moving into the sort of um, build to rent market, which is- Becoming landlords. The the point of that is that they're struggling to make money with interest rates next to zero and they're looking for ways to make money in what is technically quite a risky business move, moving into something that isn't there of expertise, that is competitive. Um, define risk. Yeah, exactly. The million dollar question. But anyway, as I said, we have uh, gone on for far too long already today. Thank you very much, Kit, for joining me again and your valuable insight. Thanks everyone for watching. Uh, and we'll be back with you again next week. Bye for now.